Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. The following episode contains descriptions of violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in the Rain. Hey, Alicia. Hi, Em. You got a good tale of murder or crime in the Pacific Northwest for us today? Yeah, I definitely have a tale of murder. And it actually kicked off with a news article I was reading a couple weeks ago. And I recognized one of the names and it got me thinking about this case So I figured I'd share it with you. I'm excited to hear it. On December 28, 2018, in Colville, a rural area in northeastern Washington state, 51-year-old Mark Leland was fatally shot during a domestic dispute with his father-in-law, 72-year-old James C. Gates. Mark, his wife, and two young daughters live in Glendale, California, and were in Colville visiting his wife Michelle's father for the holidays. Though accounts weren't clear as to what the domestic dispute started over, it happened in the garage. Gates claimed that he acted in self-defense, citing that he had been pushed to the ground by Leland, and only reacted to the violence with his gun. There are previous accounts from the past that Leland had beaten Gates up on multiple occasions. Leland, however, gave a different account to the police as he lay dying in his pool of blood on the garage floor, claiming that he did not give Gates any reason to shoot him and never pushed him. In fact, he told police that he came into the garage, found Gates already on the floor, and when he asked him what happened, Gates said, you pushed me, and then he shot him, as if he planned the whole thing. An ambulance took him to the local hospital, and he died later that night. Now, I don't know where this is going, but you've got to have a lot of spite and hatred going on if your last words are going to be to frame somebody. I know, it's real commitment. You you know, so I I, I don't know where we're going with it, so I'm excited to hear, but it's very, you know, yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) That guy did it, you know. You did it. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. After being apprehended, Gates was given a $250,000 bond and forbidden to speak to his own daughter. He recently has gone to court and has pled not guilty, And though this is currently going on, I can't really get much more information. So you might be wondering why this case piqued my interest. Yes. (laughs) Do you? This is the end. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye. (laughs) Great episode. Well, here in Portland, the name Gates might sound a little bit familiar. The Gates family has an interesting history. Michelle D. Gates, also known as Michelle Shorthouse and Michelle Leland, was born on January 1st, 1966. Gates was the child of a teen mother. Her grandmother, Deletta Reese, actually took on being her primary caregiver and raised her since she was a baby. When she was 11, her grandmother's husband shot and killed her mother, Diane, after finding her late at night with a man in their home. And 
it was said that her stepfather's belief that Diane had become a prostitute, and so clearly he didn't appreciate that line of work. Oh my, quite the reaction. When researching everything I could to find out about Michelle's childhood, I came across an interesting quote online. I think it was from a Reddit thread because I'm on there kind of like a stalker. I'm on there all the time. So this person on this thread claims that their aunt was a classmate of Michelle's and that they were in like a shop class together. And the quote says, another detail that I don't think has made it onto the internet literature is that she, Michelle, was building a life-size coffin in her middle school woodshop class at the time of her arrest. <laughs> so why this is interesting to me is I just think it kind of outlines that she maybe was interested in death, maybe had a little obsession with it. A few thoughts. So... I don't have cold medicine. I just have trouble focusing sometimes. So this is the same Michelle whose husband was killed mm-hmm. by her stepdad? Yeah. So she, so she lost her mo- bio mom and her husband to uh, the father figures of her life. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, wow. Put that's that really way. major. Also, I would like to point out I had to make a plastic skateboard in my shop class. Yeah, I made a CO2 I, car. If anyone had told me we could have made a coffin. I would have done it too. I really would have been on board. Yeah, I think I would have. Maybe not life size. Maybe like for a doll or something. Yeah, like a pet. Or my brother. My brother's shape. <laughs> my brother's shape. <laughs> to his exact dimensions. Not size. Shape. <laughs> not long after her mother's death, her cousin tragically drowned. In November 1978, Michelle's three-year-old cousin, Natya Otino, had reportedly fallen into the duck pond at Washington Park Zoo, now named Portland Zoo, and he drowned while he was in her care. So at 11 years old, she was actually babysitting him and another small child when this occurred. What? Yeah. So witnesses said that they actually saw her in the pond holding him, and she had claimed she was trying to rescue him. But they only saw it towards the end, and he was already gone at that, that at that time. So. so are you saying there are implications that she did something? I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves okay. yet. Okay. Well, I'm just... <laughs> just so in t- two years later, January 1980, Ruth Ann O'Neill, a neighbor of Michelle D. Gates, was found dead in the backyard of a neighbor's on top of his trash heap. According to Ruth's mother, Gail O'Neill, four-year-old Ruth and her six-year-old sister, Bethany... Your favorite name. That is. Enjoyed walking up to Herfie's, a local store on Hawthorne. And it was about three to four houses down from them. So it really wasn't that far. But those are pretty young ages, I guess, to be going to the store alone. But they did it all the time. The, you know, the storekeep knew them. They often bought ice cream and treats. Um, And it was a trip like this that would be the last time Gail ever saw her daughter Ruth again. On that tragic day, Ruth asked her mom if she could get an ice cream. And since it wasn't far and her big sister was at a slumber party, Gail said it was okay for her to go by herself. Ruth put on a rain jacket and her boots and her mother gave her a dollar and she headed over to her fees. Without a quick return, Ruth's mother grew really concerned and began looking for her immediately. She was horrified when she found a pair of little rain boots in the garbage can behind the restaurant. And they were the same rain boots that Ruth had left with that she had seen on her. Shortly after the discovery, the police were notified, and then they found Ruth's body not long after lying in that trash heap behind the neighbor's house. She was dressed wearing her denim pants and sweater. Her raincoat and dollar bill were near her. And though there was no sign of sexual abuse, uh, Ruth was not wearing underwear or socks, which was a little odd. So I think the, the medical examiner 
<clears throat> called it, uh, what did he say? Something like extraordinary, but no, wouldn't elaborate on what that meant. But I think it was that odd that her underwear wasn't on her and there wasn't any sexual abuse. Her socks and underwear were eventually located and they were not far, but they were in the neighbor's shed and they were neatly folded. Quickly, police identified that she had drowned. That was her cause of death. And they began canvassing the neighborhood and looking for clues and interviewing everyone and investigating the cause of death. And that's a lot to happen in a really short amount of time. I mean, if you're talking about this little kid going to the store and she should be back in you know, what is that window going to look like? Five, 10 minutes? Yeah, it was really quickly. And the, I mean, the store is only three houses down. So you imagine it'd take like three, four minutes yeah, to get there. And it wouldn't take that long for mom to be worried. So we're not right. talking like so she an eight hour window. What happened? It's like you found this kid, took this kid, drowned this kid, put the kid back, stole it. Like that's exactly. a lot to happen. I can't imagine. I couldn't find any like absolute time frames. Right. But I would think after about 15 minutes, she started getting concerned. Yeah. Questioning the neighbors, it wasn't long before the police questioned Michelle. She was then 13 years old and had often babysat Ruth, so it was uh, someone they wanted to talk to in case maybe she had seen her. When she was telling her story and recount of her interactions with Ruth, police immediately noticed that there were a lot of inconsistencies with her story, and that really piqued their interest to get to know what, what actually happened and why she was spinning these stories. Sensing far more than what Michelle was telling them, police brought her into the station for additional questioning. She offered some really interesting stories on what happened to Ruth. The first she suggested was that Ruth's mother did it and that she had given her drugs. And then she thought, oh, no, maybe the neighbor raped and suffocated her. That's probably, you know, why you found her on his property. They were picking up on something there and they wanted to know more. So they decided to try saying something like, Whoever did this must be really brilliant to see what she would do. And it worked. Michelle admitted that she had lured Ruth into the waiting pool behind her house. And you may have picked up on the fact that this story happened in January in Oregon, which means it isn't a nice backyard pool for like a casual summer swim. This is like 10 inches of freezing rainwater with probably moss and mosquitoes in it. And according to Michelle, she lured her into that pool under the pretenses of teaching her how to swim because the neighborhood know that knew that Michelle was an avid swimmer. She helped dress her in a yellow bathing suit and brought her to the small pool. And once in the pool, she held her face under the water until she was completely dead. She pulled her out of the pool, took the swimsuit off and redressed her in her clothes with the exception of the underwear and socks. She then lifted her body over the fence and placed her in the neighbor's rubbish heap. She hid the underwear and socks in the shed, and police definitely think that was to frame him for her death, since she kind of alluded to that in one of her many stories she told them. After admitting to Ruth's murder, Michelle actually kept talking, and she told them that she actually killed her cousin as well in a similar fashion, and that... In public. In public, yeah. So originally, she had claimed like she was trying to lift him onto the fence to see the ducks, and that he got away and fell in. Um, But then she said, no, she actually took him in and drowned him there herself. Wow. At the time, Michelle's trial was one of the longest running trials of its kind in Oregon history. And this is likely due to the misstep that no one read her her rights when they were getting these stories from her. And since she had a really complicated juvenile status, it just drug the trial out for like five years. 
Some of the psychiatrists that evaluated Michelle noted that she suffered from a narcissist personality disorder with schizoid and passive dependent tendencies. And they suggested that they she could never be cured from this, that this is something that she's going to live with her entire life. Mm-hmm. While the five-year-long trial pressed on, Michelle was sent to live in multiple homes for disturbed children, eventually spending two years in one of these homes in Maine. She returned to Portland, Oregon, still waiting on the results of the trial. And during this time, uh, people discovered she was actually volunteering at the YMCA as a swim coach for disabled oh, children. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they eventually figured it out and dismissed her. But there was an incident that someone brought up while she was working there. One of the other uh, swim instructors had to yell at her multiple times because she was just standing there watching a five-year-old boy struggling in the water. He clearly was not not able to swim and she was just standing there watching and she her excuse was oh well he needed the extra experience he needs to gain confidence i like that that wasn't enough to let her go they weren't like you know this isn't this obviously isn't a good fit because you're just standing there watching yeah children well, struggle they had to wait and they had find to out wait until someone <laughs> pre-google and someone's like you know that name really rings a bell i feel like i've been I hearing think i know her oh yeah she's she has a hobby of drowning children Eventually, in January 1985, Michelle accepted responsibility for her crime. Um, Her punishment, though, ended up being really controversial. She was given what's called a limited sanction without ever being placed in a secure detention. So that basically means you're under the watchful eye of the state until you're an adult, but you never have to really go to jail. Michelle, who then changed her name multiple times for obvious reasons, fought to have her childhood record expunged, and for some reason the 80s probably this was accepted (laughs) so this classic reason yeah so this basically means anytime she applied for a job she did not have to say she's ever been convicted of a crime so no one ever knew she could go and be a lifeguard or a swim coach no one would ever know now keep in mind this is prior to measure 11 uh, which we passed because of this case so measure 11 means that kids who do something violent like rape or murder actually do go to jail and that we no longer expunge their records. So because of this, something good came of it. Oregon learned their lesson. But you know who didn't learn their lesson? I'm going to guess Michelle. Yeah, Michelle did not learn her lesson. Mm. And in 1992, at the age of 26, I think, if I did my math right, the now named Michelle Shorthouse was indicted in federal court for attempting to hire a hitman to kill a woman by burning her house down with her in it. Wow. So where do you procure a hitman? Where would you procure a hitman? Dark where would web? I? Well, I mean, but we're talking 90, what year? 92? 92. Yeah, 92. Well, there is no dark web. There's no web. There's not. So she decided to call an ex-boyfriend. I mean, that was going to be my next thing. Yeah. For so, me personally, yeah, I'd probably just call an ex-boyfriend. Right. Call an ex-boyfriend. I mean, why'd you break up? I'm sure you trust him, even though you broke up. But who and does she want to kill? People. Nar- garbage people know garbage people. So... <laughs> She decided she wanted to kill her fiance's ex-girlfriend and her motive was she wanted to gain custody of their children so she could be their mother and raise them together with her new husband. So the ex-boyfriend felt guilty for obvious reasons and he Mm. turned her in. She ended up pleading guilty to charges of abetting arson or abetting? Abetting? Abetting. 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 That's like D. Okay, for like apparently going to be committing arson probably paying for it. Right. And with the intent of committing murder. And so she was sentenced to 15 years. She eventually got out on probation in 2008 and she's free to live a normal life and get married to Mark Leland and raise two beautiful young girls. So now she's a single mom, 
raising these girls and I am wondering, is somebody watching her? I mean, this is really kind of mind blowing. It is totally mind blowing. Right. Like, so right now, step grandfather kills the mom. Okay. Because the prostitution thing. And I don't think she knew her dad back then, but. So this is dad, dad. Dad, dad. Kills her husband. And this was literally 10 weeks ago. Yeah. This is very recent. December 28th. So hmm, that's unpleasant. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like. Do people know who she is? Do they? I mean, that's probably why she lives in California. I wouldn't want to live in Portland. Yeah, but yeah, is there has, now everyone knows her new name? Has the government have has there been any kind of social um, services overlap to be like, hey, we're just going to keep an eye on these kids because their dad died? And I have no idea. You know, do you? And also, do you think she had that conversation with the husband? That's what I was thinking about earlier. Like when they're dating, and when you're in the dating phase, and it's like, what's your background? What's your baggage? Dating nowadays, you Google each other, you drop pictures in Google to see if you can find them. Yeah, not saying I do, right? But I'm guessing she had to tell him, right? Like, hey, FYI, when I was 13 year old, I killed someone. They got together in 2008, and if you're with someone like 10 years, you're not gonna be like, "Mm, now that. And does she tell him, hey, I just got out of prison? Just FYI, now that like, oh, hey, I'm pregnant. Also, I've killed multiple. Yeah, children. I don't like, know. She and has killed multiple. What's children. crazy is I found another. And she has kids. <laughs> I found another Reddit thread where people were discussing this case and like discrepancies that they think happened in the news. Somebody on there is uh, one of her current friends, and they were just, I would trust her with my kids. She's one of the nicest, most caring people ever. And I'm thinking, man, how would you dismiss two murders? And potentially more because there was like a neighbor or something. Wasn't there like someone else? Am I well, wrong? there is a conspiracy. I could not. I could not find this on the internet to confirm it. But there are there are people on those threads that say the other child she was babysitting when she went to the zoo and murdered her mm-hmm. her cousin was actually Ruth, and that maybe oh, Ruth that would saw be part it. Of and why. as she got oh. older. Michelle was worried she might squeal on her. And I don't know if this is true, but it makes a really good story. I just. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just out here trying to date and meet a decent guy. (laughs) I've not killed children. Just putting that out there for anyone that doesn't want to end up with someone with a narcissistic personality disorder. Before I get into this other story, I absolutely have to tell you about because yes. I'm obsessed with it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about killer kid stats because it's really, really rare. Even though you can Google it and see books on the subject and tons of kids that have done it, there's really only uh, about 74 children a year that kill in the United States. And this, and this is considered like under 14 years of age and less than 1% of homicide perpetrators are made up by that. So Mm. of the whole rainbow of killers, only less than 1% are children. Of this small number, the vast majority of these killer kids are males between the ages of 11 and 14. What these researchers did for uh, psychology today, what is this? Psychology Today, yeah. <laughs> what is some this? some sort of what is some sort of magazine I read? Jumbo garbage. <laughs> so they did this research and they looked at 146 murders committed by children uh, between the years of 2005 and 2012. And what they found is that they fell into five distinct categories. So the first is older siblings who beat a younger sibling to death, and these are usually two years of age or, or younger. And this is 
typically when they're babysitting them. So that's one way. The second is a child kills a relative, usually a parent or a grandparent. The third, a child grabs a gun and kills a peer during a moment of anger. The fourth, a young teen or group of teens shoots an adult stranger during a robbery or break-in. And then the last one, a group of teens attacks a lone victim or group of victims as part of a conflict, usually a gang rivalry. Now, what's interesting to me is Michelle fits in none of these categories, but she is in the very, very rare group of girls that actually do this type of thing. So the 10% of that small number are girls. Mm, And I'm wondering, where do they fall in these buckets? Yeah, I would think it would be similar, but even then she doesn't fall. I mean, she just had premeditated homicide right so as i'm a family member and not in a heated moment and well a family member and a neighbor that she had gone to their house and had dinner multiple times so yeah i don't and it sounded plotted to me i mean putting the underwear and socks in the neighbor's shed to try and frame him like it sounds like she thought about it but what i found really interesting is it reminded me of another case that is pretty famous it happened in england uh, so uh, kick back and enjoy this one. Mary Flora Bell was born May 26, 1957, to a 16-year-old Scottish girl named Betty McCricket. Oh. Betty McCricket was a prostitute. Oh. She was uh, originally from Scotland, but ended up living in Scotswood, England. Betty ended up marrying a man named Billy Bell, who was a lifetime criminal, mainly doing robberies. Uh, But that was around the time Mary was a baby. So they gave Mary his last name, Mary Bell. Mary endured a lot of abuse as a child, both physical and mental in nature. It was said by her, her mother's sister that she was often trying to get rid of her, pawning her off on other people, trying to get her adopted, give her Norway to gypsies, uh, and that she may have even tried to kill her a couple of times, you know easy way to get rid of your child yeah and as a child mary actually told people that she was four years old when her mother began forcing her into prostitution as well and so then you can add sex abuse onto the long list of abuse she's already enduring this was however never corroborated by her family who seemed to know a a lot of the abuse she was going through At the age of 10 and 11 years old, Mary lured a three and four-year-old boy on separate occasions and ended up murdering each of them. Two weeks prior to the first murder, a couple of odd occurrences happened with Mary, both of which alluded to a child who definitely has disturbing tendencies and could have used some help. Firstly, 10-year-old Mary was playing with a three-year-old boy when he suffered a really bad fall. This was easily written off to an accident. Kids fall all the time. But then three different mothers of young girls came forward to police and said Mary had been choking their children. Nothing really happened. The police basically scolded her, told her, you're not allowed to choke kids, you know, go play. Two weeks later, the first murder took place. This was May 25th, 1968, one day before Mary turned 11. She targeted a four-year-old boy named Martin Brown that lived in the neighborhood. Two boys playing in an abandoned house where Mary actually committed this heinous act notified police that they had found a body of a young boy. Police found little Martin's body with a little bit of blood and saliva on his face, and next to him was an empty pill bottle. So they just assumed he swallowed the pills by accident and died, and they ruled it an accident. Wow. However, we know now that Mary actually strangled Martin to death and left the pill case there to throw the police off. 
But we actually can't be positive he didn't take any medicine because since it was ruled an accident, he was buried, no autopsies done. This was a long time ago. Um, and it wasn't until later that they discovered she murdered him. After the murder and accidental death ruling, Mary actually visited Martin's mother to ask about him. She even asked if she could see his body in the coffin, another recurring theme of these little murderers. Later, she and her friend Norma broke into a nearby nursery school and scrawled taunting notes on the wall for people to read. The notes claimed ownership of the murder of Martin and promised that they would do it again. One note read, we did murder Martin, drown fuck of, and I guessing that means fuck off, and you can see an image of that on our website. By this time, Mary was now bragging around school that she had been the one to kill Martin, but everyone knew her as a liar and a storyteller, so nobody really took it seriously. And it's too bad that they didn't because she did end up killing again. Two months after Martin's death, Mary enlisted her friend Norma to help her lure another little boy. This time, the target was three-year-old Brian Howe, and again, she strangled him. However, it went a little further this time. She brought a pair of kitchen scissors and mutilated his body. And is Norma just hanging out? Norma, it's said that that Mary was kind of aggressive and a bully, but Norma was like her sidekick go-to and went everywhere right. she went. But you got to keep in mind, like, this is a really terrible neighborhood. These kids are left to their own devices, you know, tale as old as time, no supervision, horrible home life. They're just out doing what they want. Brian's family ended up going to look for him, and Mary and Norma offered to help. Mary even pointed out an area of a block of concrete pile, or looks like blocks of concrete all piled on top of each other. And Norma was like, oh, no, no, he's not there. So they moved on and never checked the spot. But little do we know, that's actually where they found his body. So she was like calling it out, right. wanted them go to look, find go it. Go find him. So once police ended up finding his body, the neighborhood was in a total panic because now there's two little boys murdered in a similar fashion. They have no idea who did it. But finding Brian's body offered police a lot of new insight on who the killer could be. It's noted that after his death, uh, his body had cooled. Somebody then went back and carved an M into his stomach with a razor blade. And the lack of brute force with the murder actually told police that a smaller person, a child, or maybe a woman had done this crime. It wasn't long before the police were on to Mary because she had such an unnatural interest in the case. And they eventually uh, arrested her and put her on trial. And she said she did it solely for the pleasure of it. She enjoyed killing people. The media quickly dubbed her as evil born and everyone labeled her, labeled her as a psychopath. Bell was sentenced for manslaughter at what they call at Her Majesty's Pleasure, which means it's just an undetermined amount of time, basically, I think, until they're rehabilitated or they're sick of putting them in jail. So she spent only 12 years in prison and they let her go in 1980 and let her get a new name so she could live under this new identity and no one would know who she is. How and nice of them. Yeah, that's the story of Mary Bell. There are a lot of podcasts that do that cover her uh, more in-depth books, all that jazz. But we have some pictures on the website so you can see her. She is a little scary looking, I will tell you. She has these like piercing, light-colored eyes. Yeah, that is an interesting parallel to so what do you our think? local friend. Our, yeah, it is, right? I mean, young girl mm -hmm. plots it out, tries to cover it up, has like a backup plan on, on pinning it yeah. on someone, whether it's the pills or the neighbor. One thing I just wanted to bring up is I feel like a lot of people confuse sociopaths and psychopaths. So I just mm -hmm. wrote down a few things to yeah. kind of clear it up. 
Um, so though they're different, there are some things in common, and I think that's why people do confuse them. So shared traits, according to psychology today, is a disregard for laws and social norms, a disregard for the rights of others, a failure to feel remorse or guilt, and a tendency to display violent behavior. Where they differ, though, sociopaths tend to be nervous, easily agitated, volatile, prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. So in terms of committing a murder, they're more likely to be haphazard and disorganized, spontaneous. So in the moment, heat of the moment murder, Mm -hmm. whereas a psychopath they're carefully planning out details. They're calm, cool, collected, and they're, they're not letting things get to them because they have no reason to have pressure. They're just on their own, you know, level. So I, I think that's interesting because both of these girls, to me, kind of align more on a psychopath. Yeah. Um, but there were quotes out there calling Michelle a sociopath, but I, d- I definitely don't think she is. Well, and you can... It's my understanding that you can be both. Yes, you, know, that you, you can, can be have both. these Absolutely. dual It's rare. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, you think of like a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer and that's more the psychopath where it's, this is the plan and yes, I have a head in my fridge and that, you know. Yeah. And I know it's super cheesy, but it's something that I'm personally working on <laughs> because of my environment of just little things. And this isn't like to be a co- politically correct thing or whatever, but it's, those little things of oh my gosh that's crazy or which is to try not so to say used that all the time. but like you're such a psycho and it's like you Let's don't really know who's right that. like someone literally could be, be one. a technical psychopath it's funny you, you say don't that. know that and you're just throwing it around and it's like and that's not like oh you have to protect everyone whatever it's just kind of something to be conscious of of that you know people are allowed to leave their house and have normal lives and have these mental health diagnoses earlier i mentioned that michelle was diagnosed as a narcissistic personality disorder with schizoid and dependent personality mm-hmm. um, anyway schizoid was something i think i went through a phase saying as a kid i didn't know oh, what it yeah. meant i just thought but it you're meant such like a schizoid spazzing out or whatever yeah, totally so i was looking him up and i just felt really bad and, and oh I yeah thought, once you yeah, start gotta, looking at all i mean once say you these kinds of things take the context out of so much of our cultural vocabulary of like what a spaz even right. that you which is not that. a thing and you don't say it with like well, any once you realize what it means it's just not nice to say right yeah which is but, for those of you who are interested in knowing more about her personality traits that they mentioned, I did I did write those down as well. So narcissistic personality disorder, a.k.a. my mom's entire side of her family, <laughs> is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance and a deep need for excess- excessive attention and admiration. Um, and then people with schizoid personality disorder tend to be distant, detached, and indifferent to social relationships. So they tend to be loners. They're okay being on their own. They don't really need any anyone for anything but dependent personality disorder which she's also has tendencies toward is characterized by a pervasive fear that leads to being clingy so it usually manifests in adulthood or early adulthood and includes um, having a difficulty making everyday decisions without a lot of advice we know someone like that (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I mean it's not shocking that she would have an attachment disorder her mom died when she was young yeah uh, and you've got all that violence like, yeah, that's screaming and attachment disorder right there. So mm-hmm. I which mean, leads to a, a weird when you have that combo and that's not 
that unheard of of a combo of it's all about me and that's all I care about. But but, but also I, need you I have to, to have this, this attachment. Help and me. so it, that's where you get these mixed signals and the violence can come out because it's get away from me. I I'm first, whatever. And then it's like, no, come back. And what do you, you know? And yeah. then, I mean, imagine that limbo in your brain all the time. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm hearing here is we need to be better about not uh, excluding people because of mental issues. A lot of people have them. Some are undiagnosed. Some are diagnosed. And also, maybe the court should not allow child killers to change their names. I just yeah, I agree. There. And apparently, England has a history of that. There's another case of a couple of boys in England who they also got new names and moved mm-hmm. to Australia. And I follow yep. that case religiously. Through my past years working in the career I've had, I've definitely worked with psychotic, like actual psychotic children. And it's a weird thing because it doesn't always present how you think it will. They lack these certain emotions and capabilities. Um, A handful of kids, no, a lot of (laughs) the kids through the years come through and they're Mom is a sex worker. Like, that's very common. That's not to say, you know, that is not anything against sex workers. Like, yeah, sex positive, go for it, whatever. Odds are, if you're a sex worker and you have a kid, you're probably still a sex worker because you have a drug problem. The drug problem is going to bring in people that are not the best people to have around your children. And then that's when you get, you know, physical abuse. You know, I've had kids where they've well, maybe I've not had kids. Again, how do I say this legally? You've known of Perhaps some stories. Perhaps I've, he- I've heard of... Allegedly. Allegedly, I've heard of maybe um, tales that, you know, par- you know, the women are stabbed in front of the kid or yeah. the, the men come in and when they're done with the mom, they beat the shit out of the kid because they're really good guys. Um, everything you can imagine, the parents doing the act in front of the kids, so then they get exposed. So all of these things... Um, you know, scientifically are shown to have a chemical effect in the development of your brain. So when you're four or five, six years old, and your brain is still developing, and now you're exposed, so you become hypersexualized, you become, you know, you have this abuse either happen to you or be witness to it, or you have a murder happen that you're witness to, um, or attempted murder on you, which is also very common. It totally changes how your brain grows and processes anything. So it normalizes all that behavior and you end up with these tendencies of not feeling, which leads to the tendency of being a psychopath. And I'm not a doctor or anything like that, so I'm not going to speak on the scientific aspect of all that or what exactly it means to be a psychopath. But when you lose empathy and you lose the ability to have a conscience. And then all of this is negative. We call this in the biz negative attention seeking behavior. So it's, oh, maybe my my mom that's like out of her mind on drugs and busy, you know, having Johns come in and do whatever. uh, Maybe I can get her attention if I break something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's where my past clients, maybe I don't know, whatever that I've heard of, you know, that's where the aggression comes in because this is how you'll hear me. This is how you'll see. This is louder than the television. Or if I punch you in the face, that's 
more eff- effective than look, they, I'm, they I'm get sitting, the attention. And they yeah, continue look, I'm the sitting behavior. quietly and doing what I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That doesn't get you anything. So, um, or look, you have to come home from work, even though you work graveyard, because you know I did something. I choked somebody at school, so you have to come get me. So it's just so many layers that feed into that. And again, I don't know the science, but there are those few that are born that way and have that natural, you know, predisposition to it. I think you can kind of grow them as well. Absolutely. So I think, you know, I find it interesting and I think it kind of goes to prove the point, both these young women when their children are exposed and that's where you almost feel for them. It's like, you know, you, you read something and you just take it at face value and go, Oh my God, this monster at 13 years old killing these babies. And it's like, yeah, that's horrific. Mm-hmm. And there's no excuse for that. However, <laughs> what what did they have as examples? What did they have as... Yeah, and just because you know, you're a psychopath doesn't mean you're going to be a murderer. And I think that is kind of a yeah. misconception oh, that absolutely. media has, you know, they, they glorify these serial killers. Mm-hmm. I mean, here, hey, we're going to do it too. Right. But... <laughs> They, they glorify it, yet there are a lot of people who live day-to-day who Absolutely. are on the scale. And I think it's even like CEOs are more likely mm-hmm. to have tendencies to be psychopaths. Yeah, that actually came out last year that yeah. it was like the job most likely to have a Absolutely. psychopath was you hear, a... You hear that, boss? Was a company CEO. <laughs> and and that makes sense because you have to be heartless. You have to not worry yeah. about people's feelings. You have to do all that. And it makes a lot of sense. But absolutely, I mean, that's the thing with like mental health and the stigma of it. It's like you see someone on a street corner and you go, oh my God, what a psycho weirdo. And it's like, well, no, they that to me is an undiagnosed or an unmedicated schizophrenic person. Right. That also doesn't mean every schizophrenic person is going to be on a street corner talking to themselves. There are plenty of schizophrenic, bipolar, depressed, psycho- psychotic, psychotic, uh, narcissistic personality disorder i mean on and on and on that just in real life life because Mm -hmm. that's what life is and everyone's got something it's a spectrum so you know again it's having that understanding of what these girls were given as their tools when they were kids and it's not a huge surprise that they ended up taking this pretty terrible path yeah you see that I'm so upset because of my tiny little butthole mouth? It's just funny. You look how worked up you got. Because you post selfies constantly and I've oh, never absolutely. said anything about like, oh my gosh, that selfie was da da Because my selfies are on fire. You almost said fleek and I would have punched your throat. Have you ever slid into anyone's DMs? Yes, all the time. Really? Yeah, it's a really embarrassing habit of mine. <laughs> That's very embarrassing. Sociopathy sociopathy psychopathy she's perfect for period pieces yeah because her face is stupid and she's garbage she's beautiful and i love her hi emily what's our story today no no i want to (laughs) start hey josh for the record if you could just leave that i started first yeah oh i'm on my period i'm very ragey right now so i'm not gonna you looked you looked at your couch Oh my god! I can manage. I it's not my first rodeo. Hannibal dared me to send a, a nip slip pic to Dean from Bachelor, 
And oh she my god, I remember that. And she didn't believe I would do it, and I did it. You sent a nip pick <laughs> to a bachelor contestant. I totally did. Like you, like. Did you have this in your photo arsenal or no, did you I took take it this for, for the reason what, of you just sending... in a cami and you're like, Oops. yeah, that's exactly <gasps> what I did. <laughs> she oh. didn't believe me. And then I had to take a screenshot to prove I had done it. And then and so now everyone's seen your nip. Not everyone. What, did he did he ever look at mm, it? I don't think so. We could look, though. It has the little scene. Thing. Yeah, I haven't looked in a, like over a so year. He never responded. No, I don't No, He did not. He got a free nipple and didn't even say. Thanks. I have a feeling he doesn't even run his own Instagram. So somebody somebody buys on. Oh my god. I actually laughed at some of the things we said and I was like, how embarrassing that I'm like <laughs> laughing at our own jokes. <laughs> Alright, let's try to get Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs> Check out what we're listening to this week. Dumb and busted pop quiz, hotshot. K hit me. A pervy arsonist who has a weird thing for men's shoes. Episode 5, Firestarter. Yes. Twins who box for work and murder for fun. Episode 42, Cray Cray. Yes. Last one. Creepiest creeper who terrorizes a family with handwritten letters. Episode 39, Watch Out. Hell yeah. For true crime stories of insane stupidity and exceptional genius, listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.